Hello again and welcome back to the Armchair F1 podcast. Um, It's been a bit of a crazy month. You may have noticed that despite having had three races um, in the last month, a lot going on in the world of Formula One that I've been quite quiet in terms of producing episodes. So I thought I'd take some time, run you through my life, and then we can get into talking about Formula One. Because of course, um, if you didn't know, you didn't follow me across social media, um, I've just moved to London. Um, I've spent the last mo- month trying to find a place, move there, start my course. Um, I've just started uh, City University's broadcast journalism course, which is renowned for anything for its intense year of the, my life that I'm about to get preparing me for the world of broadcast journalism. Essentially, the last month has just been so crazy doing that and a full-time job alongside this as well that trying to record this podcast hasn't been easy over the last month. So I do apologize that there hasn't been any content, but we're back now, we're settled, and we've got plenty of good content coming up over the next few months. Indeed, as we come to the end of the season now, the championship may be sewn up, it seems, but there's still plenty to talk about as we come to the end of the year. Plus, as well, we can really start looking ahead to 2023 as well. We're down now to the last few seats left on the grid. Plus, we've got a calendar for next year as well. There's so much to look forward to. So, as ever, let's get into talking about Formula One. We've had three fantastic races, the Belgian, the Dutch, and the Italian Grand Prix. We've got a great race ahead in Singapore. Plus, so much news on and off the track as well. There's a lot to discuss. As ever, you can like and follow the podcast at Armchair F1 Pod. But, welcome back. You are listening to the Armchair F1 Podcast. So let's start off by talking about basically the reigning world champion and it seems now the double reigning world champion come the end of the year. Max Verstappen has a chance to win the title at the next race in Singapore, provided, of course, many permutations for Verstappen um, to win the title in Singapore. All he has to do to do the, to win the title, if he finishes first, with the fastest lap, Leclerc finishes eighth or lower, Perez fourth or lower, he's champion. If Verstappen wins without the fastest lap, Perez finishes fourth or lower without a fastest lap, and Charles Leclerc ninth or lower, Verstappen becomes the champion. He has to win in Singapore, but there is with five races to go, the opportunity for Verstappen to take his second world title. It was something I called, actually, when we did our predictions video at the start of the season, I said that this season was not going to the final race. Some people, I think, expressed some surprise at that. I didn't quite expect it to be sewn up this early, but Verstappen's dominance over this season and indeed the last few races, winning the last five races, three obliterating performances. And obliterating is really the only way to describe his performance at Spa, scintillating was his performance in Zandvoort, and then cool, calm, and composed in Monza. Well, Joe Spagnoli, I'm going to bring him in first. Um, Joe, it's fair to say we've been following Verstappen all season, but the last three races, I think, have really summed up just why he deserves to be world champion this year. 
Well, before we get into that, congratulations on getting into City University of London and starting your MA. Unfortunately, however, having revealed that you're doing that, and after all these podcast recordings I've done with you, you are going to help me with my application if I decide to apply for the next academic year. So well done, Cam. You've signed yourself up for that. As for Max Verstappen, look, I've said it so many times, I'm already getting really tired of saying it. He has been so much markedly better than every other driver on the Formula One grid this year that it was only him that was going to win the championship. What's remarkable is that he has done it in a car that up until the summer break wasn't even the fastest on super times. That is a very rare thing to do. This level of consistency, this level of speed, this complete absence of mistakes is incredibly rare even in prime conditions for a Formula One driver. This is one of the best individual seasons of my lifetime, if not longer. I don't think it's going to happen in Singapore, but it will not be long thereafter. Yeah, I mean, it it just sums up, I think, the fact that Verstappen has just been so dominant this year. And there is literally, I don't think, any other way to describe this dominance that he's had. But I think we look at the last three races coming from 14th on the grid to win in Spa. And I remember everyone just saying, oh, you know, it's almost certain it's going to happen. Verstappen, despite starting 14th, being the bookies' favourite to win the race, going into Spa, pole, fastest lap, as complete as it goes. And then again in Monza, a grip penalty taking him down to seventh. You know, Verstappen has just been on inspired form this year and I always I always think it's harder to win your second championship than it is your first obviously your first you know you get over the line it's that in itself isn't easy to do but it's cementing your status cementing that place amongst the greats and that's difficult to do to win your second world title and Verstappen certainly giving himself every chance and pretty much having it sewn up going into Singapore um Let's bring in now, we, we've so far, I've been on the search for a Max Verstappen fan for quite some time and I've managed to find one to come on the podcast now. Uh, my fellow course mate, Sam Matthews-Bomer joins me. Sam, welcome firstly to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Cam. It's great to have you. I mean, just some of you've obviously been a Verstappen fan for a long time. You followed him from the start of his career, but I think there's two things here really, not only as Verstappen produced one of the individually best seasons that we've seen in Formula 1 in the last few years. But Verstappen himself just seems to be getting better. And there's no way it seems like he's going to regress anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, well, weirdly, you were mentioning there, Cam, about how kind of after someone's won a championship, it's hard for them to then surpass those those heights. But for, for Verstappen, it's almost being quite freeing for him in a way. Because if you think about it last year, I mean, yes, him and Hamilton were in a kind of really tight battle to the end of it. Both of them were absolutely brilliant. But Verstappen has moved on a level since then. As Joe was saying, he's cut out all of his mistakes. He's um, just an absolute professional. Whereas in the past, he was a bit hot-headed. He was a bit all over the place at points. But this season, race on race, he just keeps on getting better and better as you say and for the rest of the grid for the rest of the drivers I would be pretty scared at this moment in time absolutely I don't think there's any other way you can really describe it Verstappen just looks on a very inspired run of form that I think is unique I think in some of the dominance we've seen in Formula One in the past but you know I think you summed it up there Sam quite brilliantly that the fact he's cut out the mistakes he's cut out a lot of the inconsistencies that he had when he's been successful in the past. And we've slowly seen over the last few years Verstappen 
build up that title fight, build up that ability to fight for the championship. But, you know, he really has been delivering this year and it has been very impressive to see. Indeed, I mean, the question is, Sam, do you think Verstappen can win the title in Singapore? Because obviously, yes, there's a lot of permutations that need to go his way, but certainly based on current form, I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less than a Verstappen victory. I mean, I hope he does it. I hope he does it as soon as possible because then I think we could see an even higher level of racing when the pressure's completely off. But um, I, it's kind of out of his hands, isn't it? I mean, you've got, he'd need Ferrari to have another terrible weekend. Don't, I think, as you said, Leclerc needs to finish eighth, is it? Or something like that. And that's probably quite unlikely. And his teammate needs to mess up as well. So I'm not sure what will happen in Singapore. But what I'm kind of thinking is, can he, because I think the record win streak for any driver of winning consecutive races is 11. I think Vettel did it in his Red Bull days. And I think the question is whether Verstappen can match or surpass that that record. It's doable, certainly. I mean, there's six races left in the season, so more than more than something he can do. Um, the record the record actually is nine. So Verstappen only needs to win the next four races to equal that, and then five to surpass it, which would be very impressive indeed. Interestingly, again, another record. Um, Vettel set it, of course, in 2013 alongside Michael Schumacher. In 2004, the records for the most wins in any season, that, of course, being 13. Um, so far this season, um, Verstappen's won 11 races. So he is only two races off of equaling that record and three off of beating it. Very, very, very impressive stuff indeed. Um, let's go now a bit more into each of the last three races, just talk a little bit about them and talk, I guess, about just how peerless Verstappen has been. Um, Joe, let's start off with Spa because I guess there's three very different stories for all three of these races, but Spa hampers by grid penalties. Verstappen just looked like even, you know, everyone was saying that he'd win from 14th on the grid. I had my doubts, but, you know, shooting and rocketing up the field within the first few laps, getting himself into the top five very quickly and then, you know, getting himself into the lead by the halfway mark of the race and just looking like he wasn't going to lose the lead from there. It is very easy to explain why Max was able to go from 14th to 1st at Spa specifically. Why there's a DRS zone on the Camel Straight, I have no idea. All the overtaking all weekend went was, in, was into Lake Homme. It was far too easy. It wasn't difficult for the Red Bull to overtake. It's also incredibly good in a straight line and getting off of slow corners in terms of acceleration. We've known this all year. That's not a surprise. It's not surprising to me at all that Max Verstappen would win what is kind of his home Grand Prix with a lot of home support in a track that we know he has done very well at for a long time. None of this is surprising. What cannot be explained is the consistent and massive gap between him and Sergio Perez lap after lap throughout the entire race. There was no need nor explanation for why Max Verstappen was pulling out the kind of delta that he was, why he would need to pull out the gap over Sergio Perez that he did. And yet he did, while managing his tyres, while managing his pace completely, while while being risk-averse to any kind of mechanical maladies. Just an absolutely incredible performance in the context of what was a very disappointing Belgian Grand Prix overall, one that I find very boring. Max Verstappen's masterclass, there's no other word for it, was the overwhelming highlight that afternoon. I, that is among the best wins I've seen from Max Verstappen 
and I'm actually getting quite worried at how often I have to say that about another victory. Does Ed Straw have a graphic on this? Does he have a comparison percentage point that we've seen yet? Um, what I can tell you is that for the Belgian Grand Prix, Ed Straw gave him a perfect 10. And that is not, that's not an overwhelmingly common thing that he does. Yeah, it's a very rare thing for Ed Straw from the race, of course, to do. And sums up Verstappen's performance that weekend. Um, the Dutch Grand Prix, Sam, of course, your home race as well. Um, there's certainly something very interesting, I think, about that, which was a very typical Verstappen um, performance. Yes, okay. You could argue that Sergio Perez having a little spin um, at the final corner in Zandvoort might have helped Verstappen secure that pole position. I'm saying nothing, to be fair. I think the lap Verstappen pulled, I think, was perfectly worthy of pole position on itself. But just a fantastic weekend all round for Verstappen to take pole position and to control the race throughout as well. Of course, having that late safety car as well, going in, knowing, of course, switching to the soft tyres, being able to overtake Lewis Hamilton literally right at the restart. Like, there was no other way that Verstappen looked like he was going to lose that race at all, or indeed just put a foot wrong all weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought there was a slight question that if Mercedes hadn't messed up their strategy slightly and uh, had pitted Hamilton as well, they maybe could have had a chance of challenging Verstappen at least because they were very quick that weekend. But, um, yeah, I mean, Verstappen was just backed by the Orange Faithful, the orange flares going off, which I know you're a big fan of, Cam. And, um, yeah, I thought he just, again, has not quite the same performance as Spa, not quite as good, but he did all he needed to do and came out with the victory, which is all us Dutchies want to see. I will come on to those flares in a bit because I've complained about fans a lot this year. I've complained and I've praised fans. I've gone after everything, but flares very much annoyed me. That's a moan for a bit. Uh, Joe, um, from one um, half-home race to another one now, um, the Italian Grand Prix, of course, at Monza, um, a track that, of course, we've spoken about a lot of times, one that, you know, you really run the lowest downfall settings on, one that really favours straight line speeds, a track that you, you know, by the nature of the cars this year, you know, supports Red Bull's emphasis on straight line speed and that high top-end speed. But, again, Verstappen, peerless from seventh on the grid, getting up to second place very quickly and, of course, using the virtual safety car and using the gap that he was able to build up to simply just control that entire race. Perfect summary. And it's also a track where, owing to the incredibly low wings that they run, uh, DRS is basically non-existent in terms of its effect. You get slipstream trains all over the place and the advantage of DRS in traffic doesn't actually help you that much didn't affect Max Verstappen, the speed at which he got to the front. I mean, as we'll come on to later, I have a particular amount of praise for what Carlos Sainz did from the midfield in that race, how quickly he was able to make progress. By comparison to Max, he was doing it at the pace of a snail. It's Again, it, it barely makes sense just how quickly Max Verstappen is able to displace traffic, especially at a track like Monza, where yes, the Red Bull is good in a straight line and good at top end, but the advantage wasn't anywhere near as pronounced as it had been at Spa-Francorchamps. And yet, until those final few laps, there was never any question that Max was going to practically walk home that afternoon. Not at all. I mean, it it just sums up this season. This is what we're talking about with Max Verstappen. A relentless consistency, but just constantly pumping out victories. It seems from everywhere on the grid as well. I think what's been so impressive about his last four victories, Hungary, 
Belgium, um, Netherlands and Italy. In all of those four races, I think we've seen from Verstappen, we've seen everything from him coming up um, from lower down on the grid and having a recovery drive, making overtakes, controlling the gap at the front, strategy, of course, playing a part as well. It's been a perfect performance, not just from Verstappen, but I think to add as well the Red Bull team as well and how they've been producing these victories. And, you know, Red Bull and Verstappen have really given themselves every chance of, you know, rightfully winning the championship this year. And it has been such a dominant season from him that, you know, I guess I guess the time to talk about Verstappen is going to be running out soon because once he's sewn up the championship, we're going to be looking at a lot of the fights elsewhere in the season. So I guess very quickly, just to end off this section, before we cover the rest of the last few races and everything else up and down the grid, I, I, this, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, that um, we were talking about just how peerless Verstappen has been, where this ranks in the great sort of individual seasons of Formula One. And there's a few you can think of. I think Schumacher 2004 perhaps being one, Hamilton in 2020 being another. But one of the things that you could argue characterise those seasons were, Schumi especially in 2004, there was a tail off it seems as soon as all of the hard work and all of the stuff with the championship was done. There was a bit of a tail off in that season. With Verstappen, and I just want to ask your thoughts. I'll come to you, Sam, first on this. But really, it doesn't look like there's going to be any tail off from him, that he's just going to keep on going and really just show why he's been the most dominant driver on the grid this year. Yeah, well, Verstappen's always had that trait where he'll try and win by all costs. You know, people have accused him of dangerous driving in the past as a result. But I think in this kind of situation where he has been winning and he just keeps winning and it looks I mean he's basically already sewn up the championship I think that kind of mentality allows him to in this situation he just enjoys it so much that he's he's not going to stop winning anytime soon and I think the Red Bull car it suits all his needs it's perfectly it's basically perfectly tailored to his style you know there's nothing to hold him back and he'll just keep on going and going and going and I'd actually say I'd put I'd put money on him breaking that Vettel record of nine races. I think he's going to break a lot of records. I think that's just one that's going to, going to go this year. But I think for everyone, myself included, you know, as a big Lewis Hamilton fan, he thought that he would be the one who'd set the records that no one else could break. Well, you know, Verstappen's still very young. Let's not forget he's still, I believe, only twenty-four. So there's still a lot of records for Verstappen to go out and break. And Joe, that, I mean, that, that, let's, just, let's just finish on that. It really does seem at the moment that the sky is the limit for Max Verstappen. You know, the, the rumour is how much longer he'll actually be in the sport after the end of his current contract, which is understandably the longest in Formula One. To my knowledge, it expires at the end of either 2027 or 2028. But even if he was to some for some reason retire at the age of 32, 33, on current pace, it is more than believable, more than expected even, that he is going to nothing short of trounce the records that the likes of Schumacher and Hamilton have set up to this date. It is really terrifying. But on that nine race record, that nine consecutive wins, I completely agree with Sam. It should not have been possible this year. The Red Bull has been nowhere near as dominant relative to the Ferrari as in terms of raw pace as people have made it out to be. That is just how much better Max has been than everyone else on the grid this year. 
Well, let's come on to Ferrari. Let's come on to those other teams now. Stick around. Plenty more to come here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Well, let's stick with the last three races now, because certainly there's plenty more for us to talk about. Um, Drama packed throughout all of these races um we can i guess kind of go through them race by race just give a brief summary of i guess some of the key points some of the key talking points from each race see where the links are and of course we'll have our w's and l's across the last three races as well in a bit so i guess let's start off in sparjo because um obviously we were coming into that weekend saying you know it was really one that wasn't so many ways wide open especially with the way that the belgian weather has a habit of doing well it didn't quite deliver perhaps as much as we thought it was but one thing of course interesting of course grid penalties giving a very mixed up grid going into the race and you know many drivers of course coming through the field max verstappen being the most notable example there but you know a lot of opportunities for drivers to excel at the belgian grand prix um of course george russell again having a pretty decent weekend of course Perez and Sainz as we expected doing well at Spa I mean in general it was a good race I think from sort of everyone sorry I'm going to do that whole section again because that was absolutely fucking garbled a good race from everyone I mean did you see what happened to Lewis Hamilton no apart from that apart from that hold on start that again well Let's now focus on each of the last three races. Give a bit of airtime to sort of everything up and down the grid and some of the key talking points. So um, starting off in Spa, of course, um, much to talk about there, particularly, of course, so the rain didn't quite deliver in the way that we're used to in the Ardennes Forest. And of course, a very mixed up grid across those few races as well. But certainly um, some very good performances up and down the grid. Um, in particular, both the Alpines produced some very strong qualifying and race performances at Spa. Um, Alex Albon getting his Williams into Q3, a very impressive feat indeed. Of course, we'd already mentioned perhaps the star performer of that race, of course, being Max Verstappen, putting the car on pole and then falling down to 14th. Um, Joe, in general, I mean, some very good individual performances um, at Spa. Um in particular, though, I mean, let's there's, there's, there's just start off. Um, well, we've talked about Verstappen already, but in general, Ferrari had, I guess, had quite a mixed weekend. Carlos Sainz, of course, starting the race on pole, producing a very good race in the end. Charles Leclerc making his way up the field, but not quite delivering when it counted in the end. Yeah, and of course it was matched with, as per usual, a characteristic Ferrari strategic error towards the end of the race, pitting for soft tyres in an effort to get the fastest lap, despite there being, to my knowledge throughout the weekend, absolutely no evidence that even on the soft tyres, Ferrari would have had the pace to match what Max Verstappen did. However, as a result of the tear-off that had got caught in Charles Leclerc's brake duct earlier in the race, um, he actually sped during the pit lane, which led to a post-race penalty, which took away more positions from him. However, the initial pit stop, even if there hadn't been a penalty, even if he hadn't broken the speed limit of the pit lane, he would have still been in danger because Fernando Alonso was right behind him at pit exit. The fact that yet again, Iñaki Rueda and the Ferrari strategic team had no idea of this or did know about it and paid no heed to this is just inexcusable. And whatever the case, it led to Charles Leclerc losing 
even more points, putting even more nails in the coffin of a championship battle, which seems like it died a very, very long time ago. Yeah, I mean, Ferrari and strategy has been something that has been a big talking point all season. I mean, Sam, of course, we were speaking about this off air as well, that, you know, obviously there was the big blunder for the Claire um, in Spa, but in general, perhaps nothing of the catastrophe of the last few races for Ferrari, but certainly just a feeling that, you know, we see, for example, the virtual safety car in Monza as well, that Ferrari strategy, again, not quite the sharpest tool in the box when it comes to each race. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the thing that kind of, I mean, I'm not a Ferrari fan, but the thing that annoys me slightly about Ferrari and their strategy is that they never seem to take responsibility for it. At the end of every race, they never admit that they've made a mistake. They kind of say, oh, you know, it wasn't, there might have been a slight error here or there, but we'll look into it. And, you know, there's never any really responsibility taken or culpability accepted. And I think as long as that continues, they're just going to keep on making mistakes. I mean, Joe's mentioned a lot this podcast that the Ferrari car is probably only slightly worse than the Red Bull and was probably better at the start of the year. So the fact that they're now so far behind, not only in the Drivers' Championship, but in the Constructors' as well, I mean, is testament to the mistakes they've made throughout the season. Mm. And indeed, strategic blunders really do sort of categorise Ferrari this season. Of course, another race where not made so much their strategy was poor, but certainly um, their, should we say, their ability to release a car in the pit lane was quite poor. Was, of course, in Zandvoort, where Carlos likes to pick up that penalty for his unsafe release at Zandvoort. But in general, an interesting Grand Prix from um, Ferrari there. Charles Leclerc starting the race in second, not quite, again, getting what he needed to finish because, of course, a good race from Mercedes. Um, We'll bring Mercedes into this chat now because, obviously, the Belgian Grand Prix, very much one of damage limitation um, in some ways. Again, Mercedes qualifying reasonably okay. Not Their car very much saying they're not suited to the characteristics of Spa. But starting the race in the top five, of course, Lewis Hamilton getting taken out after a very good start by Fernando Alonso and retiring. Um, again, bringing to an end quite an astonishing um, finishing run that Lewis Hamilton had been building up over the last few years. Um, but certainly it's been quite interesting because obviously Mercedes had the opportunity to win in Zandvoort and strategy again played a part there. There was a lot of questions over whether Lewis Hamilton should have been brought in at Zandvoort, whether he should have come into the pit lane and had that opportunity to potentially fight on par with Verstappen. Mercedes said, of course, that they brought Lewis Hamilton in or they'd left him out on track to give him track position. But, you know, you saw the restart, Verstappen going past straight away. Pretty much nothing there for Mercedes at all. Um, Joe, it was an interesting race. I mean, I wouldn't say Mercedes did much wrong leaving Lewis Hamilton out. You could see there was a logic behind it. But equally, with that long left in the race and seeing as well how George Russell just breezed past Lewis as well. In so many ways, it seems that Mercedes did make an error there. Whatever you're trying to preserve, be that track position or tyre condition, the best what makes best sense in that occasion is to double stack. And I'm staggered that Mercedes didn't, didn't take that choice, considering that every other team had made it abundantly clear via communications or people being in the pit lane that they were going to pit the cars at the end of that lap. On the point of Hamilton potentially having a chance, though, I completely disagree. There was nothing over the course of that race to suggest that he would have had a chance on Max, especially considering that 
At Zandvoort, there was only really one passing opportunity, which is Tarzan turn one going around the outside. And throughout the entire race, drivers on the inside line defending were pushing people off with absolutely no penalty whatsoever. Even if Lewis Hamilton had defied the laws of physics and his Mercedes PU would have been able to outdrag the Red Bull unit down the straight and get around the outside. I don't see a situation where Max lets him through. And I don't see a situation where the race directors penalise Max for anything he does to Lewis either, considering the precedent that had been set earlier. So honestly, yes, they made a mistake, but in the grand scheme of things, it really hasn't it really hasn't moved the dial that much. No, certainly. I mean, I wouldn't say that Lewis was in with much of a chance of winning in Zanvoort, but the opportunity presents itself. And sometimes you've got to just be there. And... You know, Mercedes, again, tried the alternate strategy. I mean, George Russell, certainly. I mean, this is perhaps a point to follow on from. So, see, Lewis Hamilton did well going through the field at Monza. Certainly nowhere near as impressive as Carlos Sainz. And I know we're going to come back to Carlos Sainz in a little bit. Um, But Lewis certainly did a good drive at Monza coming through the field. But George Russell, on the other hand, starting on the front row, you know, had a very decent race at Monza. And... You know, we've seen a lot from George Russell recently that we talked about sort of the way that the battle has been going between the two Mercedes drivers in the last few races. But certainly the double podium that um, Mercedes have had and George Russell has had in the last couple of races, it seems maybe the momentum is starting to go back to where it was at the start of the season with Russell. Um, Is that something you'd agree with, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Russell has proven his ability by being on a par with and, in my in my opinion, um, better than Hamilton this season. I think consistently he's, I think, in every single race that he's actually finished, um, barring Silverstone and maybe one other, he's finished in the top five, which is unbelievable consistency. And um, time and time again, he's kind of been on a par with Hamilton in qualifying. And then when it's come to race pace, he's been faster than Hamilton in most races so you know people coming into this season seeing him in the Williams might have doubted him slightly might have thought would it take him a bit of time to bed in and he's proven all of those people wrong and if Mercedes provide him with the right car it'll be very interesting next season or maybe in two seasons time to see just how he does in a maybe a title fight with Verstappen or Hamilton. I'll add as well that this is the first time that Lewis Hamilton has been mathematically outside of a title fight since all the way back in 2013. He has, every race since then, he has been able to win the World Championship. It's quite an impressive statistic, which I, I'm i not going to say shows his fall this season. It's not a fall from Lewis Hamilton, but it's certainly not, I think, what he was expecting after how dominant Mercedes have been in the last few seasons. And I guess my next question to kind of move on to this, and we've talked about, obviously, we were talking in the last episode, Ferrari versus Mercedes, and how in some ways it would be an embarrassment for Ferrari to finish third behind Mercedes this year. Um, just very quickly, your thoughts on both of you before we move on. Um, Sam, I'll come to you first. Do you think Ferrari are going to preserve that second place? Have you seen enough from them in the last few races that you feel more confident about that? I think there's a big enough gap. I'm not sure I'm necessarily confident with how well they've done, but I think the gap is around... 30 points, I believe. 35, yeah, 35 points. So I, I don't I don't think Mercedes can really can really catch up. I think Ferrari, especially Sainz, has been relatively consistent where, with where he's finished in recent races. He was brilliant in Monza. 
Um, so, yeah, I think I think Ferrari should have enough to hold on, and I think Sainz and Leclerc they're both very talented drivers. If Ferrari don't absolutely mess it up, then it'll be fine. Joe. Confidence and Ferrari are two nouns that don't really go together. However, I I think there's just about enough of a gap. And the number one thing that Mercedes have had all season, and I think this is absolutely fundamental as to why Russell has that top five streak, is their reliability. Mercedes's reliability across the hybrid era has been ridiculous. I think they've got less than half the retirements of the team with the next fewest reliability DNFs. It's absolutely crazy. That has to run out at some point. We saw it run out for Aston Martin at Monza. They use the same PUs. Mercedes cannot go the rest of the season without a reliability DNF. If for Ferrari finish competitively in that race, that should be just enough to give them what they need to finish second. But if Ferrari do finish behind Mercedes this year, Mattia Binotto should be thrown out of Maranello and never allowed to come back. That is inexcusable to finish behind Mercedes with a car that was fastest in the first half of the season. Just before we move on to just discussing some of the other teams and our W's and L's, um, I have a stat. I realised this um, not so long ago, which I think perhaps, I guess, sums up the way that this season has gone. Um, Obviously, so far in the first um, 16 races this season, we haven't heard the British National Anthem on the podium once. If neither and now this is basically to say that if neither george russell lewis hamilton or lando norris win a race this season and then no british constructor wins the race this season um it will be the first time since what year that the british national anthem of course now god save the king um it will be the first time since which season was this um was the anthem not heard Wait, so, so they're listing Red Bull as an Austrian team? As an Austrian team, team, yes. Yeah, I mean, well, that's nonsense. They're British, but okay. Maybe like, so like 2006, 2005, or is that on the right ballpark? I, I have a radically different suggestion. Where are we going? Is it the mid, like, mid-50s? I can I tell you, Joe, you are the closest. Far. Give give uh, me an exact year. I would have... Hold on. <sighs> this is just going to make me seem like such a nerd. Right, so Cooper won 59. No, Van Wall were before. <laughs> all, all, I'll, I'll give you... I'll give you I'll... I think... I think... 1955 would be my guess, because that was Mercedes and Fanjo. It's even earlier... Than that, Joe. Nineteen fifty-two. That's the that's the year when Ascari won every race, isn't it? Yeah, nine. It, all but two races. I think one of them was the Indy Five Hundred, which we don't count anyway. Um, in nineteen fifty-five, Joe, I can tell you that Sterling Moss won um one race that year at the British. Oh, I am sorry. So, <laughs> British anthem would have been played. Yeah, the first time since nineteen fifty-two this season could be that we have neither a British race-winning driver or a British race-winning constructor. Um, I'm not going to say anything about those two years. That's all I will say. But it's quite, in light of recent events as well, but it's quite a potentially damning statistic there on how far perhaps both Mercedes drivers have fallen this season. And also the fact McLaren, it seems, can't produce a race-winning car at the moment. And let's go to McLaren now because... um, 
again, the gulf between Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo on show in these races. I don't think, Joe, there's anything really more you need to say than that. I mean, Ricardo was awful at Zandvoort. The other two weekends, I don't actually think he's been that bad. But then again, that barometer is based on Daniel Ricciardo's form at McLaren, which this year has been ridiculously bad. I I don't want to... I think I've said this on so many podcasts that I honestly think I have this memorised. Last year, the pace gap between him and Norris was 0.274%. This year, it's 0.379 in a car that he partly developed, was partly developed for him. What more do I need to say? This isn't going to get better anytime soon. It suits all parties for him to get the hell out of Woking as soon as possible. Indeed, of course, we have had the confirmation within the last few weeks, of course, that Daniel Ricciardo, we were talking about it last time out. Um, Daniel Ricciardo is leaving McLaren and is going to where we don't know. We don't know where Daniel Ricciardo's going. He doesn't have a seat confirmed for next year. He could be on the grid. He might not be. He might be the reserve driver at Mercedes. That's something I've heard in the last few weeks. But of course, Oscar Piastri, the young Australian rookie coming in to replace Ricciardo. That's going to be exciting indeed. And maybe the young Australian will give Lando Norris a bit more of a challenge compared to the old Australian. Um, Sam, Norris has been very consistent in the last few races and I guess is very much McLaren's spearhead in the fight against Alpine, who, if you take the reliability issues that Alpine and Alonso had at Zandvoort, both Alpine and McLaren looking pretty consistent in the last few races. But Alpine starting to open up that gap now. Again, very good qualifying and race performance from them in Spa and just generally showing, I guess, that greater one, that pace, which has been an asset for them all season, but also that consistency in the race that both drivers have relative to the fact that McLaren are pretty much going off of one driver. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if McLaren did finish above of um, Alpine, it would be a bit of a Mercedes and Ferrari situation because I feel like Alpine's car has been so much better than McLaren's this season. They might have had a couple of reliability issues, but beyond that, I think they've been had basically a pretty quick car, a car that was maybe even on a par with Mercedes at the start of the season. So the fact that we're talking about them being in a in a kind of little battle with McLaren is not really testament to how good their reliability has been this season. And Alonso's been unlucky on a couple of occasions. But um, I think Alpine will come out on top. They've got two very good drivers. I mean, I wasn't sure about Ocon's statement that he's like, Alonso's second best ever teammate or something like that and he needs to be more respected he said but um but yeah I mean Alpine have been impressive and I think they should apart from the Oscar Piastri fiasco but yeah they should finish above McLaren this season it's just got me thinking now as to who Fernando Alonso's teammates have been I mean Tazo Marquez you can make the point that Ocon's definitely a far better driver than he was but I'm guessing obviously Hamilton undeniably better the knock-on I would say I don't know we're in the Kimi Raikkonen Felipe Massa league of where do you rank them and I could say you could rank both of them above Ocon I can see Joe's kind of sort of getting his brain deep in this as well trait I hate about myself that I'm now going through every (laughs) single season of Alonso in Formula One I mean better than Fizzy for sure Esteban Ocon yeah yes obviously and probably better than Trulli as well. It's when you get to the Raikkonen's and Masses. That's that's the story. Maybe I'll, I'll leave it as another aside for one day. Who's been Fernando Alonso's best teammate? Because, of course, 
who knows maybe lance stroll will go and top that list soon who knows um we've got just uh, i guess to sum up i guess the rest of the races and some of the other talking points from it um a lot of issues over rules in the last few races and i want to get your thoughts on this quickly so uh sam i'll come to you first um a lot of criticism in the last few races over the engine penalties and what some have regarded as a slightly unworkable system and a slightly one that they don't understand in terms of how en- engine penalties have been divided between um, each drivers. Of course, it is a standard five place grid penalty um, per new part introduced on the car. You get some penalties that accumulate depending on how many items over the limit that you've gone you then have some that send you automatically straight to the back of the grid many people have rightfully said it's very confusing and the fact that so many drivers are falling foul of these regulations and the fact that there's different limits for different engine parts you know sure do you think that this system obviously yes it encourages teams to be more reliable and not produce too many engine parts but do you think for the sake of simplicity that formula one should consider a change here I do think so. I mean, it'd be a lot easier if it was just standardised and there was a standard grid penalty for replacing a certain or all engine parts, you know. I think at this time of year, it's almost a bit, always a bit weird in F1 because it feels like when you get to a certain point in the season, a lot of cars suddenly start having penalties and every team effectively overstretches the limit in terms of their engine, in terms of their gearbox, in terms of other parts of the car. So I think standardising it just making it easier for everyone to understand might be the way to go because I think it was was it was it Monza I think where like it was until the evening like 11 p.m. on the day before the race people still didn't know what the grid was going to be no one I think it was a complete mystery where I saw a graphic it didn't make sense there I mean Spa and Monza of course it makes sense for engine penalties in some ways to be taken there. Sasbar, especially given the strength of DRS and going into Lecom. Monza, the fact that, yeah, of course, you have a lot of the lap at full throttle, but overtaking, as Carlos Sainz showed, is possible. And certainly the track is much wider than others. It's one that has certainly, this stage of the season, has traditionally been taken by many teams to take engine penalties. I mean, it's an interesting one because, I mean, Joe, we've gone past the days where you just take a standard 10-place grid penalty to replace the power unit. And it's partly because the power unit has got so much more complicated. We, of course, know that there's going to be some changes coming into Formula 1 in 2026. What these look like, we don't know yet. But do you think that there could be a potential for some greater simplification come 2026, especially when it comes to the engine system? Well, with the increased standardisation across all power unit components, it would be unusual if they didn't take that opportunity to standardise the rule set as well. How that would come into place, I don't exactly know, because I don't have that many issues with the current system, aside from the fact that I don't understand why a grid penalty, which is greater than the size of the entire grid, is limited to the size of the entire grid. If you're given a 35-place grid penalty for the components that you've changed, and yet you only drop, in real terms, what, six places if you're Yuki Tsunoda, I don't really see how you can reconcile the 29 that have just disappeared. Either way, I think it makes perfect sense to reward teams that have reliable power units, reward drivers that look after their components. But yeah, I wouldn't be against greater standardisation of the rules. On Monza, though, I don't think that was a result of the complication of grid penalties. That was just how incompetent 
the Monza official, officials organization and the FIA were the entire weekend. I, we may get onto it again. Monza was a disgrace. Mm, indeed. Absolute disgrace. This year. And it's taken us only 44 minutes to get onto the point where we're complaining about organizational issues within Formula One. So there we go. It's been a good podcast so far. Now, there's been some controversy, and I guess I'm not going to say that Abu Dhabi last year kind of fueled this controversy, but of course, the race finished under the safety car at Monza, and there are F1 fans who have been complaining that the race should have been stopped and there should have been a sprint towards the end of the race. Now, I was very much against this because, again, very much the camp that I took after Abu Dhabi last year is that you don't throw red flags out unless you have to put a red flag out, which is why I agreed with the FIA deploying the safety car. Of course, I didn't agree with the decision to withdraw the safety car and the way that the cars were unlapped as it was done, something I've complained about many, many, many times. But fundamentally yes if there's some kind of incident at the end of the race that requires a safety car to be bought out you shouldn't have to stop the race just to create some kind of drama sure if you get one or two racing laps in the field will be bunched up together but you know that's far more natural in terms of the sequence of the race than just throwing out the red flag and finishing the race like that yeah if you put a virtual safety car out the gaps are very much kept the same so you know i've i've I mean, I've always complained about what I feel is the increasing Netflix entertainment-esque value of Formula One, but the complaints after Monza, I feel, very much are in that ilk. And they're complaints that I don't agree with at all and don't like. Um, Joe, your thoughts on this matter? It was incredibly interesting to watch F1 Twitter 180 on itself after they started complaining about how the race ended, but then realising the implication of their complaints meant that Abu Dhabi was okay, and you watched them backpedal at light speed from their original position. I think you have to have some sympathy for their position, like whether or not the FIA did the right thing at the end of the Italian Grand Prix, there's no denying it was more boring than a sprint to the finish. It was more boring than a red flag restart. It, it was more boring than seeing the cars. But, yes, but there has to be a competitive baseline. And as you've said many times before, red flags are there as a regulation point, not as a competitive point. Moreover, if they had called the red flag on this occasion, but not others earlier in the season, it opens up criticisms of bias, not match fixing necessarily, but interference behind the scenes, which at the Italian Grand Prix, with an underperforming Italian manufacturer, there is an obvious incentive to try and get them towards the front. Whether or not there was any proof of that, that discussion would have been had at the very least in the annals of F1 Twitter. So I barely have an opinion on the matter. It was a boring end to what was a very boring race. What I will say though, is bringing out the cranes when the safety car is around. As far as I understand it, the moment you bring that safety equipment onto the track, the red flag has to be called in the wake of changes made after Jules Bianchi's crash. The whole organisation of the end of that race was a complete mess. Calling the safety car and having the race finish under it is fine. The fact that the safety car didn't even pick up the right car, that contributed greatly to the end of the race. It was just a cavalcade of incompetence. I feel that sums it up perfectly. I mean, Sam, obviously, I guess from a from a position that might have been more sympathetic to what happened in Abu Dhabi um, last year, of course, as a Max Verstappen fan. I mean, do you are you very much in our camp as well? Very much that you know the safety car. Yes, obviously, there were so many issues with the safety car, and you may we may have probably got a lap or two of racing had none of the issues that Joe mentioned there happened in the race. But certainly it seems that in terms of from a pure sporting point, 
you know, you don't want it to be artificial. Well, I was delighted with the end of that race because Max Verstappen ended up winning and it didn't get, give Charles Leclerc a chance to to have a go at him after a red flag or, or a safety or a safety car ending just before the end of the race. But to be honest, I completely agree with what Joe was saying. I thought the way it was handled was completely incompetent, but I think the decision was probably quite right in the end as much as I absolutely loved that last lap in Abu Dhabi. I was off my seat, I was on the sofa. I just thought that, um, in hindsight, probably it wasn't the best way to handle things. And I think the way they, that they did it at the end of Monza was more boring, yes. There wasn't so much entertainment, but it was the right way to go. And it's the way they should continue to do it in the future as well. I think one point we can 100% agree on there. Well, again, so much really has been happening, but we're going to finish off. We're going to round off our review of the last few races as ever with a good old favourite W's and L's. Those are coming up in a bit. Stick around more here on the Armchair F1 podcast. As ever, it's time to round off our, I say our very bumper review of the last three races. We've had a lot to talk about just in general, but let's go into some drivers that, and teams or indeed anything really from the last few races that has been particularly noteworthy. Um, Joe, I'm going to come to you first. Let's talk about Carlos Sainz. Um, you briefly mentioned him earlier, you know, having very strong performances across all three races, especially last time out in Monza. He's been, it's fair to say, for all of the questions that Carlos Sainz was getting at the start of the season, he's certainly in the last few races started to deliver more consistently. It's what makes me so grateful for, sorry to plug him again, Ed Straw of the race and his driver ratings that he publishes after every Grand Prix race race weekend, because he really has illuminated just how great Carlos Sainz has been post-summer break, and a lot of people haven't exactly noticed it. Like at Monza, the real story was Lewis Hamilton carving through the field um, and being in contention for driver of the day. Carlos Sainz got very little attention before that article came out. But at Spa, he was very, very confident, surprisingly quick, even by the Ferrari standards. Not incredible at Zandvoort, but he's one of the drivers who has, in terms of finishing position, really suffered as a result of these grid penalties and as a result of Ferrari's litany of strategic errors, the overwhelming majority of which have been completely independent of Sainz himself. Monza, though, was the crowning achievement of his entire season. Forget Silverstone. Q3 his time at the beginning would have been good enough for his starting position, but he managed to improve on the second run without a slipstream. He was giving Leclerc a toe and he got faster. That's very impressive. Leclerc, despite what people say about the end of the Monza race, did not have the pace to challenge Max Verstappen. Lap by lap, Carlos Sainz just might have had enough to challenge Max. And in this kind of form, that goes one hell of a lot of a long way. My, with the exception of Max, who is stratospheric, science has been my star post-summer break. Mm. And it's hard to argue against that, definitely. He has been, I think without doubt, just a fantastic driver in the last few races. And Carlos Sainz, I think, you know, for all of the difficulties had he had at the start of the season, really starting to show, I think, in the last few races, I think just why I think people were wrong to have started having doubts about him and potentially going into next year as well. You know, if Ferrari can be a little bit more consistent, if Ferrari learn what a strategy is, maybe Carlos Sainz could be that driver who could deliver that challenge. Who knows? Um, I'm going to go in next, actually, um, because one driver I know who has come in for a fair bit of criticism this season is Pierre Gasly. Um, now, I'm not going to talk about Zamfort as much because he's not really in there for that. That was just a bog standard weekend from him. But firstly, getting the Alpha Tauri into Q3, 
in Spa, then, of course, having the electrical issue and starting at the back of the grid to then finish in the points at the end of the race, of, you know, and produce again some very good moves. Gasly was someone who was sort of you a lot of focus on throughout the race, just making his way, carving his way through the field. He's always had good form at Spa and Monza, I've noticed, and very good overtaking form there. Again, a really strong weekend from Gasly. And again in Monza as well, of course, getting the car into Q3, of course, starting the race in fifth. Yes, he fell towards the lower end of the top 10, but considering a lot of that came from teams and drivers from the top teams coming up through the field, a very strong race from Gasly. And again, showing off, I think, that some very strong racecraft. And I think giving a hint, I think, is to perhaps the Gasly that we've become used to in the last couple of years and has sort of been restricted by the Alpha Tauri this year. It may help as well that he's completely outshining Yuki Tsunoda in every sense of the world at the moment. But I mean, that's not too difficult to do. Um, so I think more for the redemption arc that Pierre Gasly is building, especially as he may be on his way to Alpine now at the end of the season. You know, it's been good for Pierre Gasly. And I think he deserves a place as a W. But I'll admit, he wasn't the first W I had gone for. I was going to go um, for the driver that Sam has as his W. And I've got to say, another fellow Dutchman. I don't know what it is with Dutchman in Formula 1, but they seem to be doing pretty good recently. Yeah, I couldn't not take Nick de Vries. Um, I think he's tested for three teams this year, Aston Martin, Mercedes and Williams. He's a Formula E world champion. He's a um, F2 champion. He's got all the credentials you'd ever need to get into an F1 car, and yet he is at the age of 27 and he hasn't yet managed it for whatever reason, mostly bad luck. But now he was finally given his chance at Monza in a Williams car um, after Alex Albon had his uh, appendicitis and his appendix out. And he shone throughout the weekend. He was brilliant in qualifying. And then when it came to the race, cars around him were quicker than him. Um, but he still held on to a points position, held on to ninth, stayed ahead of Guan Yu Zhou, which was difficult at points considering I think Zhou had the slightly newer tyres and was really attacking him at certain points, but he held strong. He had, I think he had a black and white flag at one point for a little bit of dangerous driving, but he was absolutely brilliant throughout that weekend and effectively, finally, at the age of 27, confirmed a place, I think, whether it's in an Alpha Tauri or a Williams, in F1 next year, which is all he deserves. And I think he'll, if it looks like he's going, it looks like he's going to Alpha Tauri at the minute. So I think he'll shine in that car and I'll, he'll definitely outshine Yuki Tsunoda, who in my opinion was very lucky to get his seat for next year. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think it says more to the testament of the Red Bull Young Driver Programme that A, Yuki Tsunoda has a seat in Formula 1 next season and B, if Pierre Gasly does leave Alpha Tauri, that they're looking outside to bring potentially Nick de Vries and, of course, before that, Colton Herter into Formula 1 as well. Um, yeah, let's stick with de Vries for a bit because he has been someone who, you know, Joe, I know you say that he was the winner of one of the worst F2 seasons in recent years, of course, only eclipsed by this one. Um but he had been a decent driver in Formula 2 before that. And obviously he had his chance. He won um, in um, Formula E um, a couple of seasons ago. And that obviously created a good platform for him. But there's always been that talk that whether De Vries could sort of get his chance in Formula 1 
and what he would do with it. Certainly based off of his performance in Monza, it was the most convincing drive I've seen from a stand-in driver. I I can't think of one perhaps more than that. I mean, maybe Nico Hülkenberg back in when he did two races at Silverstone back in 2020 did look very convincing. But without doubt, I think Nick de Vries put in a fantastic performance in Monza. And of course, maybe not the circumstances he was, Williams would have been hoping for him to drive in. And of course, good to see Alex Albon has been on the mend, especially given the complications that arose from his appendix surgery in Monza as well. But Joe, stick with Nick de Vries. I mean, do you think that A, he's justified from his performance in Monza alone and his junior career, a seat on the grid next year? And we'll come on to the driver market in a little bit, but just give us an idea. Where would you put Nick DeFries at the moment? You see, I owing to the fact that DeFries has never had a full-time seat in F1 before, I think it's pretty risky to predict for certain that he will be on the grid next year. However, as I've discussed on this podcast earlier in the year, there's actually a shortage of drivers coming through that are really F1 quality. Like if you're asking me to choose between De Vries and Felipe Drogovic, who literally has just won the F2 championship in dominant fashion, I'm not choosing Drogovic by much, if at all. I mean, the, the performance that De Vries had in Monza, I remember Cam back to the days of the old Raw Sport Quarren streams when we were talking about Nico Hülkenberg's stand-in performance at, uh, at Nürburgring. This is considerably better than that. He'd been testing for another team the day before. All his preparations would have been for Aston Martin, and yet in qualifying, he outqualified Nicholas Latifi twice at a track that he was supposed to be really good at, and both laps would have been good enough for Q2. Sam's absolutely right to mention Guan Yu Zhou. I saw a lot of people saying that the safety car ending bailed De Vries out of Guan Yu Zhou getting past. He'd held up show for over 20 laps. I think he could have handled just a few more under racing conditions. I think he's more than good enough to get into F1 next year. I don't think the Alpine links have a lot of have a lot of water to them, but if Gasly ends up going to form an all-French team over at Alpine, I can't see anyone else fitting into the second Alpha Tower seat. There's no one in the Red Bull program even remotely ready to take up that seat. I can see De Vries joining two-year contract. At the end of next year, they get rid of Sonoda, bring Iwasa up. De Vries is finally in Formula 1. And no less than he deserves. Yeah, I think so. There's always been a case with Nick De Vries that he's one of those almost nearly men of a Calamilot stature who, you know, really should be in Formula One, but hasn't had his chance yet. So I would love to see Nick De Vries in F1 next year. I think he'd be a fantastic addition. And certainly based off of everything we saw in Monza, worthy of his seat on the grid next year. And maybe he'll get more chances as the year goes on. I don't know. Maybe Williams will get so frustrated with the TV. They think, nah, let's just stick. Let's just stick to Freese in the car. Joe, very quickly. Um, in the wake of Alexander Albon's respiratory problems after his appendicitis surgery, there's a very good chance that the recovery period won't be re- won't be finished in time for the Singapore Grand Prix. There is no justification if he can't race for Williams to field anyone else. I don't care about Logan Sargent. I don't care about junior driver obligations. Nick DeFries' performance in Monza has to be seconded. He deserves another chance in Formula One. And if he does badly, fair enough. Don't sign him for next year. But you can't not field him based off based on what he did at Monza. And of course, let's not forget as well, of course, Singapore, perhaps the most physically demanding race for any driver on the calendar as well. And that will certainly play a part in Williams assessing um, Alex Albon's ability to race in Singapore. Um, Let's move on now to our L's. And there's quite a lot of L's for us to discuss. Um, 
we were talking about Williams, so let's stick with Williams. Sam, let's come to you first. Our soon-to-be-departing Nicholas Latifi. Um, well, what is there to say about the Go-Tifi? Best driver on the grid in the past two years, maybe in terms of entertainment, if not driving ability. I think Joe was mentioning off-air that that even kind of at the start of the year, you were talking about Tifi a lot in terms of how bad he was race on race. And you kind of started to say it so much that you almost kind of started to forget about it and it became the kind of norm. Well, it's continued all the way through the season up until now. And now that he's finally, Williams have finally confirmed that he won't be in F1 next year. I think we can look back at the last three races and the last four races and the last two seasons and see just how bad he's been. I mean, in, um, I think it's in Spa and Zandvoort, he finished 18th both times, and that was only because two drivers DNF'd on both occasions. Um, I think it's just slightly unfortunate for Latifi. I mean, he seems like a perfectly nice human being, but he's just a terrible driver and should never have been on the grid in the first place and probably wouldn't have been if he wasn't a pay driver and was coming with a lot of money behind him. Um, the fact that he's now gone is good for the sport. I mean... It gives drivers like Nick DeVries, potentially, or maybe a Logan Sargent. I'm not really sure how he good he is, but it gives them a chance to prove their credentials when they should have had the chance many years ago. But Latifi has constantly been getting in the way. So the fact he's now gone is, is good for us all, I think. Yeah, I don't think there's anything really more to say than that. I mean, Latifi has been an okay driver, certainly. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you know, time and time again, it's a case of he's just not been delivering and he has been so far behind his teammates. And, you know, I would say, yeah, maybe he did deserve his shot in Formula One, but he's not justified that shot. And certainly in the last few races, I feel like the Tifi is just sort of going on a constant downhill now. I think that's the only way I can really describe him. Um, Joe, let's come back to you next um moving away from williams entirely we're off to another back marker off to Haas now kevin magnuson this is one that i never thought i would identify as an l given just how well the bahrain grand prix went for him but with Haas's downturn in the wake of the summer break which granted is partly due to power tracks and the fact that the Haas is very aerodynamically developed not that great in a straight line i've been staggered by how poor kevin magnuson was he was very uninspiring in Belgium, barely anything to talk about, although the Haas was more or less a tractor in a straight line. But at Zandvoort, he was next level terrible. I can't think of another driver on the grid that comes close to how bad he was throughout that weekend. He qualified 10 positions behind Mick Schumacher, who hasn't actually been in great form, despite what some people have said. He had a lap time deleted for going out of track limits in Q1, granted, but even if that, if that lap had counted, he'd have still qualified nine positions down on Schumacher. He would have been three tenths down on, at Zandvoort, which is a very short track, inexcusable to explain that kind of pace deficit. Also completely uninspiring at Monza. I say this I say this with a pinch of salt. I don't think this is going to be long term. I'm very confident that Kevin Magnussen can turn it back around. But across the last three races, I can't think of another driver that's been so consistently far off the boil. Maybe Daniel Ricciardo aside, but maybe that's just piling on to Ricciardo. Or, or Nicholas Latifi. <laughs> I mean, it's a, 
Yeah, it, it's been a difficult one to explain for Kevin Magnussen because I was watching the highlights back of the Zandvoort race just before we started recording again. And the amount of just mistakes that kept getting made by Magnussen in, in a way that, yes, Magnussen's not the most consistent driver. But you can expect a level of performance from him that he's just not been delivering. And I think that has really been, I think, the the key point, shall we say, there. Um, let's move on now, of course, obviously, because we'll see Magnuson, I think, probably come back into some better form as we get towards the end of the season. Um, I want to give a shout out very quickly to Alpha Tauri and uh, Yuki Sonoda for their continued bad performances. And it seems inability to A, fit a wheel onto a car and then park a car at the side of the track in Zambort as well. One of the greatest displays of parking I have seen in quite a good few years. Just watch it back. It's chaos. Um, But I wanted to talk a bit more about something that I've always kind of been quite interested in, something that I think is very much going in the wrong direction for Formula 1. That is the fan experience and the off-track experience for many fans, which has been highlighted in so many ways in the last few races, but especially at Monza. Um, We heard stories of extremely expensive tickets for places where you couldn't even see the track. Um, There was one grandstand that I believe was sort of within side of Parabolica that was so badly restricted by the trees and um, all of the advertising hoardings that you couldn't even see the track. There were fans complaining that the way that it had been, that the, Seats were sold at Monza in a lot of the standing areas. There was just no view at all. And people were literally having to get onto shoulders to see the track. And that's before you consider the extremely long queues, the overpriced food. Fans were literally saying, I remember seeing a great um, WTF1 video on this, that you wait an hour to go through the main gate, an hour to go get some food, an hour to take your seat in the grandstand. Once you're in the grandstand, you know, there were numerous reports of abusive fans throughout the weekend and particularly members of the Tifosi towards Max Verstappen fans. And, you know, we've talked a lot this season about the fan experience, and fans have rightfully been complaining about how the experience has been. The fact that there has been both an increased sense of tribalism and tribalism not in the right way either, but alongside that as well, just an increasingly poor value experience of fans at the track and the fact that tickets are only getting more expensive for an experience that seems to be getting worse it's one that you know particularly in the in a cost of living crisis as well really doesn't quite meet the times um sam coming to you first i mean we've seen a lot of the pictures from monza it it wasn't a good weekend for fans at all well it seems to me like Obviously, with Drive to Survive and things like that, Formula One's popularity has gone through the roof in recent years. And it seems that Formula One, as a result, and these various tracks seem to be trying to profit off that and increasing prices, as you say. But at the same time, they don't really seem to be able to deal with the increased demand. So they're allowing more fans in, they're increasing the prices, but they're not really improving the fan experience in any way, which you would expect to go up as popularity goes up so I think it's just been a bit disappointing all round and some major changes need to be made for next year especially with like the Las Vegas race coming in they really want to give a really good profile for the sport then they need to change some things up pretty quickly and you think as well because like with Miami for example it was all about the fan experience it was all about the track experience and they couldn't even create a real harbour like I feel that sums up the fan experience at the moment and it's not just at Monza as well. Um, 
If anyone had seen on Twitter, the tickets for the British Grand Prix went out a couple of weeks ago. And the amount of fans who were posting pictures of dynamic pricing, tickets literally increasing, almost doubling, tripling in value in the space of a few minutes. I know one fan I saw said that they paid the same for one ticket in 2023 as they did for two back in 2019, which I think really doesn't send out a good image. And of course, Joe, um, Formula One is more commercialized, there's more opportunities for commercial um, partners and sponsors to get involved, of course, with Drive to Survive with an increased fan base, with more global fan base as well. But in some ways, again, this is another example of the fan experience, particularly that at the track, the pure racing experience seemingly being detracted from in this example. And the complete lack of standardization as opposed to uh, when it concerns logistics, security and so much more has marred these last three races. Spa, we didn't see anything in particular, but again, it's a, it's a low cost venue, which we may well be about to lose from the Grand Prix calendar for a very long time. Zandvoort, the flares, oh my God, the flares, how could anyone see anything? And the idiotic security guy, who I'm assuming has been fired from his job doing the exact opposite of his purpose. And then at Monza, the litany of issues, which although you've gone through some of them, you have nowhere near listed the full, the full catalogue catalog of them. It's, it's truly remarkable the amount of effort that Formula One is willing to go to to facilitate this flat-out stupid Las Vegas project, this stupid, unsustainable Miami project, and yet they give absolutely no assistance, resources, or even ad- advisory to any of these venues that are expected to be on the calendar every year. Monza, from everything I heard, everything I saw, that is one of the worst organised Grand Prix weekends for a decade, if not longer. It's like they'd never hosted a Grand Prix before. This is the track that has hosted more Grand Prix than any other venue in the history of Formula One. That Dealing with what is in real terms a pretty small demographic change, honestly. But F1, there's just no practical means of being able to stop this. It's You can only follow the money for so long you have to start doing something yeah i think that's really the only thing you can say and it's frustrating because you know formula one is it's all about the fans it's so much of it comes from the fan experience you know seeing the tafosi at monza seeing you know the orange army you know following Verstappen around at so many races and it just feels like it's losing i think a lot of the soul and it's not going down a good path might I say very quickly, I hadn't had time to talk about the flares. Um, why you bring flares to a, a, a track, to a racetrack, which is no less more important. Any form of motorsport is heavily reliant upon visibility. Visibility is a crucial thing for safety. When it gets too wet, we stop the race. We go behind the safety car. Why anyone would bring a flare to a sport that relies upon drivers being able to see things? I've said it. It's just utter stupidity and whoever thought they could flow, throw that flare on the track as well i mean j- that's all i'll say i'll go on to a massive ram but again the fan experience we've seen some pretty horrific things recently and hopefully that will change going into the future and the future is where we're going to get to next a lot of news about 2023 we're going to briefly cover all of that next here on the armchair fun podcast Okay, let's move on now to looking ahead to 2023. And of course, plenty to be excited about going into next season and plenty of news in the last few weeks that we're going to reflect on here next. Um, 
I guess let us start off um, with, I guess, some of the big news that we've had recently, in particular with regards to the driver market. We've sort of briefly touched upon the driver market a bit in the last, um, lo- throughout the episode today, and indeed throughout the last few episodes when we've been talking about silly season, but we've got more of an idea now about what the driver market is looking like going into 2023. Indeed, at the time of recording this episode on the Wednesday before the Singapore Grand Prix, we at the moment have three seats left open. The second Alpine seat, the second Haas seat, and the second Williams seat. Now, of course, if Pierre Gasly goes and fills that second Alpine seat, it then opens up a vacancy at Alpha Tauri, which we've briefly mentioned we expect to go to Nick de Vries in that scenario, but there's many ways this could go. Um, of course, this coming after Zhou Guan Yu was confirmed for a second season at Alfa Romeo next year, coming, of course, after Oscar Piastri's confirmation at McLaren 2. We, of course, had Alex Albon confirmed at Williams for another season in recent weeks, and somehow Yuki Tsunoda confirmed for another year at Alfa Tauri. Um, let's get into this then, guys, because, I mean, there's a lot really for us to discuss. So, very quickly, in terms of the drivers that we know have been confirmed recently, um, Sam, coming to you first, Zhou Guan Yu, in many ways expected him to be on the grid next year. Of course, you had the confirmation, both of him and Yuki Tsunoda. Your thoughts on that, firstly? Um, I think Guan Yu Zhou, to be honest, is absolutely deserved. I think throughout the season, you can see he's developed, you can see he's got better and better. Um, I think Bottas was pretty well clear of him at the start of the season but he steadily start to, started to close that gap and admittedly Bottas has fallen off a little bit but Joe has managed to keep pace with him which for a rookie season is quite impressive. Um, I think the opposite is true of Sonoda. I think as much as I love him as a person I think he's not that I know him obviously but um, I think he's I think he's not improved he's not developed really across these two years you still see the same kind of rookie mistakes which is a little bit disappointing. And I think the fact that the Red Bull driver program is so weak at the moment is the sole reason he still has a seat. And at the end of next season, I presume that he will be quietly shunted aside. Yeah, I think we can expect that. And certainly, depending else who Red Bull bring through the driver market. Um, We've talked a lot about Zenoda, but Joe, very quickly, I know you've spoken very highly of Joe Guan Yu this year. Um. I'm not surprised he's got his seat again next year. And I think a real opportunity to show how much he's developed in a way that a lot of people were expecting from the likes, say, of Mick Schumacher this season. He's been, I have said this many, many times before, but honestly, even in the context of Joe's season kind of fading with Alfa Romeo, it's crazy to think that they once had probably the fourth fastest car on the grid this year. He's still been so much better than Sonoda, Mazepin, and Schumacher's rookie seasons last year's combined. Like, he's been better than all three of those cumulative, I honestly think. And I think we had this discussion a couple of podcasts ago. When has he made a mistake? Silverstone doesn't count. That's not on him. When has Guan Yu Zhou crashed? When has he spun out? I I can't even remember an instance in FP1 of the guy making an embarrassing mistake. That's a very rare thing. For a rookie driver to have and if he brings in a decent amount of money and a decent amount of pace it makes complete sense as to why he'd be signed up for next year absolutely and let's not of course forget as well there are many people who were saying that oh you know oscar piastri deserved the seat that joe guan yu had this season and that's not to say that piastri wouldn't have done well in it but joe certainly has shown in formula one that well he has deserved 
that opportunity and he's delivered. And I think that's something that's reflected well on him. Um, let's look at some of these other seats now. And I guess there's a lot of th- seats that are quite interconnected. So just very quickly, let's start off with the second Alpine seat. This is the most competitive seat that's left. Um, runners and riders for the seats, of course, Pierre Gasly, um, who many people, it seems now, expect to get that seat. Um, he is one name that um, is linked to the seat. Um, from other teams as well, Mick Schumacher, of course, under a bit of pressure at Haas at the moment to keep his seat. Um, he is someone else who has been linked to it. Um, but, of course, very recently, we know Alpine ran three drivers in a private test. Nick de Vries was one of them. Um, Antonio Giovinazzi was another. Jack Doohan, um, Alpine from the Alpine Academy, was another. Um, of course, there was Colton Herter, but Colton Herter doesn't qualify for a super license, so he won't be on the grid next year. I mean, it's an interesting one, this, Joe, because Alpine have potentially run all three of these drivers to not appoint any of them to the seat next year if they can't get Gasly. But if Alpine don't get Pierre Gasly, who do you expect will go for that seat? Will it be Mick Schumacher? Will it be potentially one of those three drivers, Nick de Vries, Giovinazzi, or their academy prospect, Jack Doohan? It's weird because there are pros and cons to every single one of these drivers, and the cons are actually very strong for literally every single one. I would have... I would have bet a lot of money that Daniel Ricciardo was a shoe in for that seat. He has a link with the team before. They have the money to pay him. It's a work seat. And driving a different car from the McLaren, he would have been a good fit, but apparently not. I I don't think Giovinazzi at all. I mean, he'd be cheap, but respectfully, there's a reason for that. He's had a terrible season in Formula E. Jack Doohan is inexperienced. I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility that he gets to Formula One and we could end up with three Aussies on the grid, which is frankly a terrifying prospect when there will be zero Italians for me to root for. I don't think Pierre Gasly fits. If I was Pierre Gasly, I, as I wish I was, I would want that seat. It's a works team, a works engine, and if they get the reliability sorted, a very strong car. But I just don't see it happening. It would have happened sooner for me. If signing an extension with Haas means signing up with the Ferrari Driver Academy further, Mick Schumacher isn't going to sign it. He doesn't want to continue his link with the FDA, and with no seat at Scuderia Ferrari opening up, I can't blame him. I can see him getting the Alpine seat at this moment, but I honestly don't think he deserves it. He's had a decent season recently, but is he worthy of a team that are fourth, fifth fastest? I don't think so. Yeah, and I'd be agreeing with you there. And I think it's interesting that Ricardo seems to have been sort of taken out of the conversation with that seat. It m- would have made sense, especially all the management changing at the top as well. So it's not like the management that might have had some issues with Ricardo is still there. I find it really interesting why he's not been linked to that seat and perhaps or as heavily linked to that seat as he should be. And maybe that very much explains the fall from grace for Daniel Ricardo. I mean, I saw when I was um, in Edinburgh a month ago, a few people get excited at Alpine following Mick Schumacher on Instagram. Like this was a sign that he was going to drive from them. Sam, you're shaking your head. I mean, if Pierre Gasly is an interesting one because him and Esteban Ocon historically don't get on. And I think that's the big con for that seat. So do you give the seat to Gasly? Do you give it to Mick Schumacher? Do you give it to Daniel Ricciardo? Do you give it to anyone else? Um, well, just before I go into that, I'd just like to say over the past few weeks, I wasn't a big fan of his already, but my dislike for Esteban Ocon has just increased because every single interview he comes up with some 
kind of quite arrogant, absurd statement, either about his own driver's ability, as we mentioned earlier on, or he seems to be desperate. Like, you think him and Mick Schumacher, you know, apparently they're best mates and they go everywhere together. And so Esteban Ocon keeps on saying, oh, I really want Mick alongside me next season. Please let it be Mick. But as Joe said, Mick does not deserve an Alpine seat. It's very questionable whether he deserves a Haas contract extension for next season. Um, if I was Alpine, after Piastri left, there really aren't very many options. I think you're both right about Ricardo. I think he's probably would have been the best choice in terms of compatibility for the team. I think Gasly is very attractive from a marketing standpoint. I mean, he's a likable guy, two French drivers in the French team, you know, kind of is ideal in that sense. But there's basically no one that's perfect for the team at the minute. And Gasly, if you don't go for Ricardo, might be the best of a lot of bad options. Yeah, I think I, if I was to get my choice, Gasly, I think, is maybe the best driver out of all of the options. But Gasly and Ocon in the same team doesn't work. And if you've made your commitment to Ocon, I just don't see that working. Mick Schumacher has not done enough to justify that. See, I would go with Danny Rick. Yes, he'll be expensive. Yes, I wouldn't offer him the longest contract in the world. I'd go one, two years at most. But he is probably the best driver for that seat, Joe. You say he's expensive. Every week that he doesn't have a contract offer for next year, he gets cheaper. Mm. And By the end of the season, he can't charge more than 12 million. And I think alongside that as well, I don't think that he could really go anywhere else because I think he is too expensive for Haas and for Williams based upon what he's been paid so far. So it's the only seat Daniel Ricciardo would go for. And I think it makes sense because I still do think Daniel Ricciardo is a good driver. Even if, you know, he's not been in great form this season, he's still a good driver. We were talking a couple of years ago as Daniel Ricciardo being amongst the top five drivers on the grid. And that was when he was at Renault, of course, now Alpine. So, you know, Let's give him, cut him some slack and see what he can get out. So I've put him in that seat, but, you know, interested to see how it goes. There's two more seats to fill. Um, we've briefly mentioned that second Williams seat. Um, if presu- Now, presuming Pierre Gasly doesn't go to Alpine and keeps his seat at AlphaTauri, I think we can assume maybe, maybe I'm being too presumptive that Nick DeFries would end up getting that second seat now. But Williams do have options. Um Logan Sargent, their academy prospect is one. There are rumours that Alpine have done a deal um, to for Jack Doohan to go to Williams, similar to the deal that Oscar Piastri was supposed to have been working under for him to go to Williams. Just very quickly, who do you put in that second Williams seat if there is no Nick de Vries? Again, I'm presuming here we're putting Nick de Vries in the seat. Maybe you'll disagree with me. Um, Sam, you first? Um, to be absolutely honest, I don't know enough about Formula 2 to know the various merits of Logan Sargent and Jack Doohan, so I can't really commentate or comment on them. But um, apart from that, Nick DeVries does seem to be the only option. I mean, Mick Schumacher, potentially, if he doesn't sign a contract extension at Haas and doesn't get a deal with, done with Alpine, but I can't really see that happening. So I think they're pretty stuck and would have to go for Logan Sargent, although I know absolutely nothing about I him, mean, so. Logan Sargent obviously had a good season in F2 this year. I mean, in many ways, Joe, Logan Sargent, the star, perhaps, of F2 this year, even if he's not been the champion. Um, it was in the sense of the star name that people have been talking about 
throughout the year. I, I feel Joe, Joe is disagreeing with me. He's, his eyes are telling me he disagrees massively, but he's been the just classic anti-Brazilian-Italian bias. <laughs> Felipe Drogovic has been the star of this season and it is not even close. But look, Sargent, I think he's been really good. He's been rookie of the season in Formula 2 by a long way. He's not at the realms of possibility for me. But again, the idea of him having a seat in Formula 1 and Teo Porsche not having one and Felipe Drogovic not having one is something I can't reconcile. Nick de Vries. He's my answer. Well, let's go on to the second half seat now, because of course this is where things get interesting. And I get the feeling that the pool of drivers that Haas would be going for is almost completely different to the others. So, um, Joe, stick with you. You mentioned Teo Porcher there. Um, would you, if Mick Schumacher doesn't sign on, would you put him in that second half seat? I, I personally would keep Mick Schumacher. He's, I mean, he's not done enough to justify the seat out like on his own but equally i don't think he's done enough not to justify being kicked off the grid straight away and i do think there's been flashes from him that i think would be enough for him to keep the seat on the grid is that similar to you are you thinking someone else in that seat yeah i don't think mick schumacher is i obviously am a little bit cooler on his season than a lot but i don't think it's a lot of people but i don't think it's anywhere near as bad as justifying immediately being removed from the Formula One grid. He deserves another season in Formula One. I just don't think he deserves a top-class team to showcase his talents. Prove yourself in the midfield first. As much as I would want Teo Porcher to come in, he doesn't bring the kind of money that Mick Schumacher does with his one-on-one sponsorship and all the German brands that are willing to attach themselves to his name. And as much as I love Porcher, he also has underperformed when being given a good opportunity this year. He's so far behind Drogovic in the championship standings. Of the two, I do take Schumacher. Sam, are you agreeing there? Reluctantly, yes. I'm really not a big fan of Mick Schumacher. I think he's very much there on his dad's name. Um, But there are really no other options. I mean, seemingly beyond Porsche, um, it would be Antonio Giovinazzi and... I don't. I think he proved in that final season in Alfa Romeo he's maybe not quite good enough for um, for an F1 seat. But I do think Schumacher will actually leave. I think the kind of signs that Gunter Steiner has been putting out there kind of been suggesting there's a few doubts about Schumacher's performance. And even when he has a good race weekend, Steiner says, oh, he could have improved here or there. So um, I don't think Schumacher will have a seat next season, to be absolutely honest. And think it'll be interesting to see what has to yeah i think really interesting to see there because of course Haas is an interesting one in terms of who they could sign just i think because their pool of drivers that are available to them completely different so i think it's going to be interesting to see um let's move away from the driver market now let's go on to the calendar because we have had a calendar for 2023 and let's start off with the highlights and i guess let's start off firstly with something that i know joe will be deeply, deeply sad about. Um, the removal of the French Grand Prix, Joe. Um, it, Paul Ricard's not everyone's favourite, but you know it's a track that has produced in the last few years some pretty decent racing, I would say. And considering what has been added to the calendar, and we'll come on to that in a bit, you know, certainly what we have being added back, Paul Ricard is far better than that. I mean, I've, I'm one of the few I know who's driven around the Las Vegas layout in a simulator and it is moribund at best. I've seen some minor changes that they've made to the layout. It is a high-speed bowl with next to no 
hardcore racing action. It is it is to purists what salt is to slugs. It is really that bad. I cannot imagine the race is going to be entertaining at all. Not to mention, you know, the Doha street circuit, which we haven't even got a map for yet, a layout for yet, based on what I can tell. In the wake of what we've heard about the Qatari stadium building for the World Cup, which will be starting soon, seems incredibly tone deaf of Formula One and Liberty Media to allow this to go ahead. But we knew the French Grand Prix was going to leave. I will defend Paul Ricard to the hilt, as I have done many times before, the data that proves that it really is a great racing circuit. And it could have been a good mainstay of the calendar for at least the next few years but we all knew it was going to leave. Yeah, I mean, one thing I could, one thing I'll just give you there, Joe. We're not going to the Doha Street Circuit. We're going back to Lusail next year. Oh, for- <laughs> I genuinely despise that track. Move on. Yeah, I'll run you through the calendar quickly. So, season kicks off on the fifth of March in Bahrain. We're in Jeddah two weeks later. Strap yourselves in. It gets better. We're off to Albert Park. Two weeks after that, the return of the Chinese Grand Prix in Shanghai on April the 16th. We're then off to Baku on the 30th of April and Miami a week later. I would hate to be the people on that turnaround there going from Azerbaijan all the way to the US in a week. We then have quite an interesting looking triple header um, at the end of May into early June where we go to Imola on May 21st, Monaco next on the 28th of May. And then the Spanish Grand Prix at the start of June. I don't think we've had a Spanish Grand Prix in early June, I think, since the late 90s. So that's going to be pretty fun indeed. Pretty hot as well. Um, Also, the Spanish Grand Prix, I don't think, has been ever as late as race nine. I think at least certainly since Catalonia came back onto the calendar in the early 90s. So, again, very interesting to see that. Indeed, we're off to the circuit Gilles Villeneuve on June the 18th before my favourite month of the season arguably has just become even better. We have the Red Bull Ring, the Austrian Grand Prix on the 2nd of July, the British Grand Prix, race 12 of 24 next season at Silverstone on the 9th of July. The second half of the season then kicks off at the Hungarian Grand Prix on the 23rd of July and then the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa-Francorchamps, the last race before the summer break on July the 30th. I mean, that's going to be a interesting one given we're used to spa right at the end of august having it right in the middle of the hot european summer will the weather be as exciting i don't know it's going to be an interesting one summer break kicks off before the last 10 races we go to zanvoort at the end of august and monza at the start of september before we leave europe it's the first flyaway at the singapore grand prix on the 17th of september suzuka a week later for the Japanese Grand Prix. We then go to Qatar to the Lusail International Circuit on the 8th of October. We're in Texas two weeks later at Cota, Mexico City at the Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez a week later. We're at Interlagos the week after that before the season rounds off with the Las Vegas Grand Prix two weeks later, the first F1 Grand Prix on a Saturday before, as ever, rounding off the season at Abu Dhabi on the 26th of November. Um, A few highlights there, obviously. Um, 24 races, the most ever in a season. The return of Qatar and the Chinese Grand Prix, of course, the start of the Las Vegas race as well. And, of course, obviously, we've talked about already the French Grand Prix coming off the calendar. Um, It's an interesting calendar, Sam, if I can come to you first. I mean, obviously, we've got the new races coming on. The return, I guess, of obviously races in the Far East. Um the real push towards the destination race model. Um, 
What are your thoughts on the calendar very quickly? And in particular, do you think we've just got too many races next year? Um, I think we've got too many races and also the way the races have been structured is hardly kind of conducive to Formula One's aim to be carbon neutral by 2030. I think if you look at the way that they've been structured, you're going from USA to the Middle East, back to the USA, to over to Asia, and it's just so many air miles, which is just, to me, is slightly crazy and slightly unnecessary. I don't think fans are necessarily calling for more races. So I don't understand why they've therefore put more in there. I think we're going on to it in a little bit, but also more sprint races is just quite a stupid decision for me when, again, nobody's really calling for it. So I'm not a big fan of the calendar, to be completely honest. And, yeah, I think if I was if I was in charge of it, I'd have made some, some slight tweaks. I mean, firstly, I'd have the French Grand Prix on there. I probably wouldn't have a race in Qatar. I'd at least wait until we have a circuit in Qatar that is A, not a motorbike circuit, and B, one that's actually designed for Formula One cars and not just around the street. I mean, Joe, it says a lot, really. It feels like there's a real lot of emphasis on a lot of the sort of the destination races really being pushed and given a lot of notoriety. And then a lot of the classic races kind of just being pushed around a little bit to fill the gaps. I mean, the Imola Monaco Spain triple header, I think, is an interesting one because it kind of does show that very much fitting in the gaps there that those races have kind of been put in that compact period but also moving the Belgian Grand Prix to the last race before the summer break I'm not being a purist or anything but it does feel like it's kind of just been shoved out the way it almost feels like the Belgian Grand Prix is in some ways just a bit of an inconvenience the fact it has to be on the calendar next year which for a track like Spa it doesn't really deserve They've made so many errors when it comes to negotiating these circuits. They're like 10-year-plus contracts that the likes of the Hungaroring and especially Yas Marina, which is a terrible track that they've been given. They really shouldn't be handing out contracts this long. Um, I could go through you know, the, the litany of errors with this schedule. However, the fact that you are now defending the French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard is one of the most <laughs> incredible redemption arcs I have ever uh-huh. seen. And I'm still shook to my carbon-enriched core. It just doesn't... Des- it just deserves its place over a lot of what's on there las vegas miami even we've not been to vegas and i can tell you how bad it's gonna be but that miami Qatar. i mean there's just so many races on here that just shouldn't be on there and it's all about the destination race commercialization money and it's not about pure racing i've said this so many times you know we did an episode at the start of the year about fixing the calendar this has just broken it even more yeah and what I will say to end this off, and Sam is absolutely right to point out the CO2 emissions of the, the sheer dest- the sheer distances between these tracks and the fact that we're crossing the Atlantic seemingly at random and no, no amount of carbon extrusion is going to make this sport carbon neutral by 2030 if these are the kind of distances that they want to travel. This is what happens when you disproportionately favour one market over another. There is absolutely no reason besides the pure short-term commercial factor, to have three races in the United States of America. There is no reason that one region of one country deserves a Grand Prix over the whole nation of France, over the whole nation of Argentina, over the whole continent of Africa. People have totted up the total differences, like the total distances of travel required, not even including trips home between race weekends. If you remove those two extra Grand Prix in the USA, it's really not that bad. 
for a season of over 20 races. But they are insisting on having them at that point in the season because Liberty are so keen on attracting the US market at all costs. All I will say is good luck promoting the Miami Grand Prix when Lewis Hamilton retires. Good luck promoting the Las Vegas GP five years down the line. It is not going to work. These things never do commercially. And if they have any interest in having a Grand Prix in South Africa, which I am a supporter of for diversity, if nothing else, you're not going to be able to go carbon neutral. That's just geography. That's just the traveling distances. If you want, if you're going to have a calendar this long, you're not going to be able to go carbon neutral. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums everything up. Apart from as fa- well, the fact Joe, we're going through all the countries, still no race in Germany, and that, and I think for motorsport yeah. fans, I think just says it all. Um, just one last thing, Sam briefly mentioned this, and I know Joe, you've had a lot of words about sprint races in the past, but we are having double the amount of sprint races in Formula One next year. We're going up from three till to six. Um, Joe, you've never been a fan of the sprints. Do you think more sprints, more familiarity will be a Stockholm syndrome? You're going to fall in love with them next year? Two words combining for a total of seven letters, three of which are F. Move on. I think that pretty much sums it up. Sam, anything else to add? That is a complete inconvenience. No one even notices when they happen. So, no, they shouldn't be in the calendar at all, let alone... To be fair, every time I'm going over a Grand Prix weekend and I I almost discover there's a sprint race happening by accident, I literally see it's happening. It's like, oh, I have to change my plan at the last minute because there's a sprint race happening this weekend and I didn't see that at all. So I think that pretty much sums up the popular support that they have. Well, interesting, I think, to see what's going to happen going forward with them, whether maybe fans will like them more. I can pretty much tell you straight away that they won't. But I don't know. I feel Liberty are just kind of at the moment they're going on this. We're going to keep pursuing everything that we want to do at all costs just so we can prove the fans, just so we can prove the doubters wrong. The thing is, though, I feel it just entrenches everything that all the doubters are saying even more. And frantic, you know, fundamentally, it's just not good for Liberty. And at the end of the day, it's the fans that lose out. And, you know, that's just not good at the end of the day. Um, Plenty more for us still to discuss here on the Armchair F1 podcast. We, of course, need to look ahead to this weekend's race, and it's a popular one. The Singapore Grand Prix back once again here on the Armchair F1 podcast. The Singapore Grand Prix is back this weekend, um, and it's a very popular one, I have to say as well. It's one that a lot of fans have said is one of their favourites every season. Yes, it's a street track. It's one that, you know, at the face of it doesn't necessarily, you know, look like it's going to produce some of the most exciting racing. But under the lights of Singapore, we have seen some classic races over the years. Of course, the first race, um, many ways, of course, the controversy of um, Crashgate sort of taking over that whole weekend. But, you know, a fan- in some ways, some good driving and some good racing throughout that whole weekend, of course, 2010, Fernando Alonso and Sebastian Vettel going toe-to-toe for a whole race. One of the best Singapore Grand Prix I can remember. Um, 2017, let's of course not forget the start line crash between Sebastian Vettel, Max Verstappen and Kimi Räikkönen. that very much was the beginning of the end of Ferrari and Vettel's title challenge that season. It's a track that has produced some fantastic racing over the years. Um, it's a track that's had a few modifications as well Uh, most notably the singapore sling the old triple chicane replaced by practically a flat left hander but you know 
it is a fantastic track it's one that's produced some good racing over the years and it's a physically demanding one as well there used to be of course the singapore malaysia double header which must have been physically draining for every driver on the grid but it is a really fun track and one that always produces good racing um sam let's come to you first i mean singapore has been some great races over the years but it's a track that produces good racing and it's a track as well that in some ways is quite a leveler as well it's one that really relies upon the driver's skill more than anything else here with full downfall setups it really is down to what the driver can deliver on the day and what they can get around a track where there really is no room forever yeah absolutely and not just from a skill standpoint but also from a physical endurance standpoint i mean racing around in those temperatures or those speeds must be virtually impossible for anyone but a Formula One driver, so you're right, it does kind of show what drivers are made of. Um, it's one of the night races, which is always fun, so that you we got that to look forward to as well. And, I mean, if Max Verstappen takes it home this weekend, then that's all I could ask for. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I mean, the cars always look beautiful under the lights. There's no doubt about that. To see the sparks flying as well, it is absolutely beautiful. Joe, I mean, firstly, your thoughts just, Yas- um, not Yas Marina, Marina Bay, and every other race we've seen at Singapore over the years. It's a track that I think has been sorely missed over the last couple of years. I think this and Suzuka perhaps missed more than most. Don't you dare put this track in the <laughs> same ionosphere as Suzuka, the greatest track in Formula One history. I'm a lot cooler on Singapore than a lot of people. As someone whose main interaction with it is interacting with the track through software, I find it really annoying in any conditions to hook up a lap around here in any simulator. But you can't deny with the result. You can't deny the results. People like it. It's well attended. The races have actually been pretty good despite its conditions. 2008, notwithstanding, that's one of the lowest points in Formula One history. But when I think about moments, Lewis Hamilton's pole lap from a few years ago was absolutely nuts. Yeah, I mean, if, if you've ever had the chance to watch that lap, just the fact he afterwards, you could always, Lewis Hamilton doing the interviews, A, the fact he was sort of breathing so heavily, sort of saying that it was in so many ways like an out-of-body experience driving that lap. And it is such a fantastic lap if you get the chance to watch it. Um, interestingly as well, I don't think there's ever been a race at Singapore where the safety car hasn't come out at some point as well so you can always expect some kind of drama throughout the weekend it's one that yes you know from joe's experience isn't easy to hook up a lap on but equally it's one where if you get it right you will be rewarded and if you get it wrong you're going to lose out big time so a very exciting grand prix ahead um downforce of course is the name of the game at singapore as really with any kind of street track um Looking ahead to this first year, of course, a downforce, traction, braking, you know. Joe, these are things that Ferrari should be looking at, and you could say licking their lips with this weekend. There's a lot of getting off of slow corners, which has been a big bugbear for Ferrari throughout the season, in truth. It's not been a recent problem by any means, um, but there's also a lot that benefits them, like their turn-in, which I think is the best of any car on the grid by quite a long distance. I think that benefits them, obviously, around here. And in a straight line, the Red Bull isn't exactly going to be peaking in terms of top-end speed around this track. None of the straights are particularly long. And that that mitigates one of the big advantages Red Bull has. And that's why I'm not so certain that Verstappen takes it home this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult one because obviously there are some 
points, obviously some straights where you can obviously get a bit of speed up, get obviously with the DRS zones as well. But, you know, Sam, on a track that is so reliant upon, as Joe was mentioning there, downforce, turning, traction, you know, these are things that Red Bull, the emphasis they've had this season has been on high top end speed. That's not so important here in Singapore. You know, this this could be a lot closer this weekend. All very true, but they do um, have a certain man called Max Verstappen who at the moment is just so, so good that I think it's still hard to see any driver coming close to him. Um, I'd like to see a closer race just for entertainment purposes, but at the same time, I think no one really has what it takes to match him at the minute. And yeah, I can only see it going one way. Well, let's just briefly mention something else. Of course, we talk about the tyres a lot. We always like to bring in the tyres ahead of every weekend. Um, C3, C4, C5 tyres coming to Marina Bay. I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less. The softest compounds possible going to Marina Bay. But one thing that is interesting, and I don't know if um, you guys have seen the weather forecast this weekend, and it certainly seems like monsoon rains and heavy thunderstorms are predicted throughout the entire weekend now of course take this with a pinch of salt um the weather in the tropics and the weather in a lot of tropical areas can change suddenly it can be extremely kind of unpredictable so maybe we'll get a weekend full of dry racing who knows but there's really a lot of opportunities here for the weather to play a part i mean joe what do you think will happen obviously apart from the car's you know, struggling to drive on. Yes, what well, is quite a grippy surface, but one in the rain that is going to be quite difficult to drive on. I mean, what do you think the rain will, if monsoon rains are predicted and they come as they're expected, what impact do you think that will have throughout the weekend? It increases the possibility of a safety car by somewhere between 100 and 200 percent. I mean, one of the main things that rain does um, at high speed sections of the track anyway, with cars that are this heavy, is it really destabilizes them under braking. If you have a if you have a destabilized braking zone at Monza, Catalonia, you go off into the gravel trap, it's fine. It's not quite the same when there's a tech pro barrier or a concrete wall in front of you. So it, it just it's a very obvious answer, Cam. It increases the possibility of race stopping and race changing accidents, as the Renault F1 team know all too well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an interesting one as well, I think, just because I think there's always an air of unpredictability about Singapore with the fact that, you know, you really can't put a foot wrong here. But I guess that extra bit of rain, Sam, I guess, just to before we go into the predictions for this weekend, I mean, looking at not just, I guess, at the weather, but is there anything else um, you're in particular looking for? Obviously, the rain could spice things up this weekend. But of course, we're at a street track as well. It's at night. There's a lot of things here that really could throw up a few surprises this weekend. Um, one thing I'll be looking out for is I think over the past few hours, it's been confirmed that Alex Albon will be racing this weekend, which is quite an amazing recovery considering the complications that he had with that, um, with that appendicitis. So I'll be keeping my eyes on him mainly to just make sure he's, he's okay because it did sound pretty bad from, from the reports we had. So Alex Albon will be interesting, but apart from that, I'll just be watching Max Verstappen on another glorious victory parade, taking home the title as Charles Leclerc crashes out, not in a bad way, you know, he's, he'll be okay, and Sergio Perez deliberately drops down the field just to let Max's <laughs> parade be all, all, all the greater. So that's what I'm looking forward to. This is a level of simping to which I can only aspire 
All I will say is that if there is rain this weekend, we know what Charles Leclerc and his ability to make mistakes is like. I feel that simping might be deserved. We're going to make some predictions next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Okay, let's go on to our predictions. Um, Firstly, in the spirit of predictions, we need to go back to the last episode almost a month ago to our Belgian Grand Prix predictions. Um, I'll just very, very briefly say... um, I predicted a Verstappen, Perez, Hamilton top three. Joe, Verstappen, Perez, Leclerc top three. Rory, A. Leclerc, Verstappen and Russell top three. Um, Rory is almost discounted straight away. You know, I got, I tried to be adventurous um, with Hamilton. So I feel for the pure, for the pure fact that Leclerc um, was the only driver out of our two third places to finish. I think that's one point to Joe for there in Belgium. I also got the team right. You did so as well. Wrong driver, I'll but you got that. the team. Um, let's move on now to our predictions here, though, in Marina Bay. Um, starting off with pole position. Uh, Joe, let's stick with you. Who is going to be on pole? I'll keep it quick for all the reasons I've dissected about the cars and their performance around this track. I think it's Charles Leclerc. He may be out of the championship fight on all but points, but all but total points, but he can still hook up one incredible lap when he needs to. And let's to. not forget, he is the king of qualifying this season as well. I've gone for Charles Leclerc as well for all of the reasons that you have said there. I think Ferrari going to have the quickest car around Singapore this weekend. Leclerc takes pole position for me. Sam, what about yourself? It's got to be Charles Leclerc for me as well. Unfortunately, as boring as it may be. Or... Uh, to make it interesting, I'll go for Carlos Sainz. Not so good on qualifying, but, you know, might have a rogue, rogue qualifying session. And who knows as well, Sainz has put in some good qualifying performances. Um, British Grand Prix, of course, being the most notable one. And maybe with a little bit of rain as well, if there is some that falls, of course, Sainz getting that pole position in the wet at Silverstone. So an inspired move, I think, for the purposes of variety there by Sam. But it's one I applaud. So thank you for that indeed. Um, Sam, let's stick with you. Your top three this weekend. Top three, Verstappen number one, Leclerc number two, unfortunately, and uh, Carlos Sainz number three. I think Perez will be just outside. Well, I can see that we've gone back to Verstappen simping indeed, but I think it's a very conventional top three, I think, this season. I think, but one that I think certainly based on the form, shall we say, over the last few races, I think Verstappen, Leclerc, Sainz, I think a pretty good form guide indeed as well joe let's come on to you um your top three this weekend it goes a long way just to say that i did not even consider sergio perez Mm. at any point for any of these you know ameliorative predictions carlos signs third but Charles Leclerc converts pole to win just ahead of Max Verstappen. I think it's going to be so damn close. I think it's going to be very close this weekend as well. I've gone slightly more controversial, I think, than even you, Joe. Um, I've gone Charles Leclerc to convert pole to victory. I've gone with Carlos Sainz to round off a Ferrari 1-2 at Singapore and Max Verstappen to come home in third. And that's not saying anything against Verstappen. I just think Ferrari, the way that their car is, I mean, sure, they do have, they have got had issues coming off corners, but I do think Ferrari are going to be really dulled into this track at Singapore. And I do just see 
a Ferrari 1-2. Verstappen, very, very close. I think it'll be very close. And this is also relying on Ferrari understanding what a strategy is. But I do just see a Ferrari 1-2 happening this weekend. I've just, I'm, I'm feeling it. Um, Joe, I don't know if you're, you, you look slightly bemused. Have you forgotten the state of their pit wall? I'm, I'm being optimistic. They've got to get it right one weekend. They have to hook it up at some point. That's what I've been saying all year, and they still haven't. Well, maybe maybe this weekend I'll be optimistic. I'll give them the cause to do that. Um, let's go on to our miscellaneous predictions now. And in the spirit of heavy rain and everything that comes with that, I've gone with at least three safety cars during the race. I think there's going to be a lot of action. It wouldn't surprise me maybe if Perez was or Hamilton or Russell was the cause of one of them. I'm not putting that in a prediction. I'll just leave that out there. But I'm going for at least three safety cars this weekend. Um, Sam? Um, I've gone very controversial, and I probably don't actually think this will happen, but aided by your three safety cars, Cam, and aided by the pressure being off now that he hasn't got a seat in F1, Latifi will finish in the points. Ooh. Williams' car completely unsuited to this track. I mean, no no straight line speed for them to exploit. So um, it's probably going to be completely wrong. But you know, Well, Gotifi does have a habit of inspiring in ways that we don't quite comprehend. Um, Joe, finally, yourself. See, I've gone sort of similar and the opposite to Sam here. If he races, and I... You know, there's still a chance that some kind of medical condition will be decided that he will not race. Alex Albon scores points on his return from appendicitis for Williams. I agree with Sam. This track actually, it, it doesn't it doesn't harm the Williams as a, a lot of other tracks do. However, if Nick de Vries replaces him for this weekend at last minute, he also scores points. Whichever driver starts for Williams, scores points. Basically, whoever's in the Williams that isn't Nicholas Latifi scores points. So I feel you have literally gone quite contrarian on this, and I quite like that idea. I'm sorry. We've been recording for over a year. <laughs> how is that How is that surprising to no, you? No, it's not, it's not surprising at all. And to be fair, you know, Williams, I feel if there is one team that can spring a shock on the grid this year, Williams is that team indeed. Um, that is it. Um, again, it's been a bumper episode to cover for the fact that i've been rather busy over this last month but formula one is back in the swing of things as is the armchair f1 podcast and we'll be with you until the end of the season now i'm um, just some last thoughts very quickly sam anything else to add before this weekend's race if i had my spotify open i'd just start playing supermax for stappen so those are my final well thoughts. i do not want the copyright to come strike this episode down um joe any last thoughts from you Oh, how beautiful would it be after recording for two and a half hours if you got hit with a DMCA notice at the moment this got uploaded? Nothing else. I mean, I've enjoyed this break. Thank God we didn't have to go to Sochi again. Oh, do you know what? I 100% agree. Uh, you just reminded me of the thought that I was I was going to have to plan an episode in Sochi this year. And obviously the circumstances as to why we're going not in Sochi this year, obviously not not good at all. But at least we're not going to Sochi. Because you imagine Singa- Sochi, Singapore, Suzuka. Not only is that like the worst tongue twister you could ever like have to say. It's a mouthful. But to go from uh, Sochi to Singapore, two street tracks, one after another, at least Singapore is good. I'll give it that one. Have it the other way around, though. You go like 
Sochi, I remember the old days, it was Singapore, Suzuka going to Sochi. The disappointment. <sighs> Unpalpable. In that regard, I'll finish off here. Um, thank you so much for tuning back in. As ever, the Armchair F1 podcast will see you through until the end of the season. Make sure to like and follow across social media at Armchair F1 Pod. Drop my guests a follow as well, Joe and Sam. Keep up with all of the brilliant content that they are pushing out too. Um, we'll be back very soon. As ever, though, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>